Maybe there really is something about that old saying, you're comparing apples and oranges. And what if you learn that some of your responses to what we refer to as the other or our neighbors is often like taking a huge eraser and saying, you don't really exist. Hello, this is Todd Littleton with Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian, the place where we explore the intersection of life, faith, and pastoral ministry in a theological perspective or in a theological register or frame. It's uh, something like what my professors in college and seminary encourage us to do, and that is to think about life theologically, that is from the framework of commitments to God's revelation in Jesus. So along the way, we explore any number of things. Some uh, happen to coincide with uh, cultural events, social uh, interactions and intersections. Some will be peculiar to the life work of the church. So if you want to go back and check out our catalog, you'll find a variety of interviews and podcasts that explore that particular subject. And that gives you at least a sense of what we're doing here and uh, what you can look forward to as we talk to authors, thinkers, practitioners, in hopes of providing resources for the pastor theologian. Today on the podcast, I'm uh, looking forward to you getting to listen in on my conversation with my friend uh, Johnny Russell. At one time, Johnny was a member of the band The Cold War Kids. I think the first time I met Johnny, he was attending a small conference that I was also attending. And at a special event, he played guitar for a rendition of a Striper song. I believe it was To Hell with the Devil. Since that time, we've uh, had another occasion or two to meet and to talk. Currently, Johnny's working on his Ph.D. He is an adjunct professor. He writes, and he serves as chaplain on Skid Row in Los Angeles. The combination of all those experiences have uh, formed and shaped Johnny to think about uh, life and faith and, of course, as a chaplain, what that looks like in terms of pastoral Type work. He works with uh, uh, those who live on the streets, providing some potential education opportunities, as well as rehab and post-incarceration uh, help. And so uh, I hope you'll uh, find our conversation helpful. I can't say it won't be a bit controversial as we talk about what uh, uh, a false equivalency looks like what a false analogy means, and how it affects our conversations and our understanding of our neighbor, or what sometimes is often referred to as the other. So here's my conversation with Johnny Russell, and I'm hopeful that it provides one more resource for your uh, help in the work of pastoral ministry as a pastor theologian, and anyone interested in that particular intersection. Thanks for listening. Today on the podcast, I'm glad to have Johnny Russell. Uh, we, we met uh, a number of years ago, and I've been kind of watching uh, some of the things that uh, Johnny's been writing and, and uh, 
and trying to keep up with him that way. We see each other, uh, oh, every now and again. But uh, I'm, I'm really glad that uh, he has a few minutes to pop on Skype and have a conversation. So, Johnny, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Todd. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, I want to I want to um, uh, use a couple of pieces that uh, you wrote because there are lots of you know things going on in in the wider culture and your perspective as uh, both a PhD student, an adjunct professor, and a chaplain uh, on Skid Row give a, a unique kind of perspective to some of the things that tend to be um, polarizing. Yeah, uh, and and so. Um, uh, I think I want to start with your piece you wrote um, about um, blue lives and yeah. kind of your perspective on that. Sure. Um, you, you had a line um, that you were really trying uh, not to be offensive to uh, police uh, folks. I won't say yes. men because we have police women. Yeah. And and so um, any of our listeners need to know up front that this is not uh, a subject of disrespect, but right. it's a it's a help to distinguish um, something that you drew out the difference between say a vocational identity and the self. Yes, good. Yeah. And and uh, so I thought maybe um, help us kind of draw that distinction because you know a lot of pastors uh, who might be listening um, really live lead really busy lives and and the whole issue of the identity of the self is is really taken on some uh significance with um the black lives matter uh womanist theology and um a renewed i think at least renewed interest in liberation theology and and so yeah, help, help us think a little bit about that um, how do you draw the difference between a vocational identity and um, kind of the, these issues of the self? Yeah, well, no, that's a really good way of putting it, Todd. Kind of um, to contextualize that piece, um, which I wrote for Huffington Post. It was called Here's What's Wrong with uh, Blue Lives Matter or Hashtag Blue Lives Matter. Um, so that was, uh, you know, a hashtag that I, I'm sure it existed before, but really grew uh, immediately in popularity um, back in July after the, the, the horrible, I believe it was for the most part right after the horrible uh, shootings in Dallas mm-hmm. of uh, officers there. Um, and, you know, I think the, the first thing to say is, you know, thanks for that preface at the outset, because this is a pretty... Um, pretty potentially contentious discussion. Um, but the first thing to say at the outset is, you know, nothing about critiquing a hashtag um, is to say anything of to devalue blue lives or people that work in law enforcement. Um, but uh, I have to say that because the article was shared up, you know, something like six, 8,000 times. And so I got a lot of response, a lot of uh, uh, blowback. And, uh, but the real, the, the point I was trying to get across was, well, you know, Obviously, what we're doing when we create a hashtag like that, Blue Lives Matter, is to play off of the now two or three year uh, process of Black Lives Matter and all that activism uh, around uh, race and police brutality and violence and, uh, and all of the inequity um, and oppression around uh, blackness in America. Um, so the reason that I wrote the piece was really to question, hey, when we, when we pick up... Uh, an important social movement like that and turn and say, uh, you know, blue lives matter. 
as if it's an equivalent statement. Um, it, it connotes things and it intimates things about um, what we mean by that phrase, the importance of that phrase, and attaches them to, like, like you said, a vocational identity in a way that I think is pretty harmful. Um, so I kind of had three ways of, of parsing that out. And, and one of those is, is that um, as a phrase, it makes working in law enforcement, um, I, I believe the way I said it, a social identity that is equivalent to racial identity or to race. Um, which I think is dangerous in general. I mean, you can talk about that um, as, a, as a religious person or just as, a, as an individual, the idea uh, that my, uh, not even vocation, I think that's more of a kind of a, a spiritual uh, a Christian term, but even just occupation, to make occupation uh, an identity equivalent to race, is to say that what I do every day um, connotes the same kind of identity, the same kind of social identity, that my racial identity or my ethnic community uh, has. And I think that's dangerous, particularly in the context of law enforcement, because we have all kinds of examples in society where that identity uh, and the, um, you know, the phenomenon of the boys' club or the fraternal code of silence, what they call the blue code or the blue wall of silence, already very much exists between officers. And this has been shown in studies from many, many different departments in many different contexts uh, where that identity uh, become something not just of a kind of a group pride, but some dangerous kind of collective thinking uh, and uh, almost plain ignorant to uh, corruption or uh, foul play on, on the part of individuals because of that social identity. So I think there's some pretty obvious reasons just in general why our jobs should not be associated with our ethnic identities in terms of the depth and effect they have on our lives. But also, even just in particular in relation to law enforcement, I think there's some danger of that identity becoming a, a ruling force in individual officers', officers lives that sometimes uh, overshadows uh, honesty and justice in, uh, sort of in, um, in calling out you know, wrong action. So, I mean, th that's the first point, you know, uh, I think to speak to your um, difference between vocational and racial identity. I think there's just a profound difference between those. Um, and to act and use a phrase like Blue Lives Matter as if there was the, the depth of life impact uh, socially and in terms of my individual or collective identity uh, at, to think that it has the same kind of impact or meaning as uh, racial or ethnic identity is just, it's just inappropriate. Yeah, I, I think, I, and I like your distinction between occupational and vocational. I, I, I get that subtle shift. I, I think that one thing I had in mind was um, the ways that we could describe how that sort of marker doesn't work, and we could mm. we could use um, and of course this runs some risk using it, and, and and you you actually used it in in describing the um, police officer relationships as fraternal. Yeah. Um, but I was thinking uh, fraternal in the sense of um, uh, a social code of yes. a like group of commitments. So that um, we wouldn't have a hashtag that say fraternal lives matter for those who participate in fraternities or sororities. We, you sure. know, we, we wouldn't do that because those are choices people make. Right. The distinction between uh, a, a blue life, as you're describing it, is a an occupational decision. Even if someone might feel that to be a calling, it's still an occupational decision where being black is is a right of birth. Uh, a marker of Absolutely. birth, and that's a, that's that's a different distinction, and you made that quite well uh, in your in your piece. Right. 
I, I wonder um, if, if kind of moving out from from that, we could we could you use the term that I think really is important and reason. And, and I know there are a lot of other ways we could describe this, but but you says you 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 remark that that it results in in what you refer to as erasure. And mm-hmm. and while that may not be, uh, a, a, you know, in, in your top one hundred words you use every day um, for pastors who are listening. It has a very, very um, uh, vivid evocation when right. you use the term erasure, and then you're talking about people. So when you draw the equivalency between Blue Lives Matter and Black Lives Matter, you made a point to say it it moves to erasure. Yes, and yes. And, and so kind of help those who might be listening. How how is how how does that work? What are some ways that 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 gets felt, uh, shows up, and and maybe the whole idea of erasure as just a big eraser, erasing yeah. people, would be pretty profound uh, to those who might be listening today. Yeah, so I think there's uh, there's a lot of different ways to construe how erasure uh, is working. Uh, in a context like this, I, I think one way, and I think this is the way in which Blue Lives Matter is a variant of uh, the kind of response. It's, it's a similar response and it has the similar effect of All Lives Matter. Mm, uh, right. And, and in, in though it is taking a particular, I think um, it's a way, uh, I think the impulse to want to say that, oh, well, you could apply that to anything, is the impulse to want to not want to acknowledge the uniqueness and the importance of sitting with this one particular difference, namely black lives that matter, and emphasizing that. So the impulse to all lives matter is to cover over or to say, yes, but all. Even just saying that or black lives and other lives matter is this impulse to at once want to acknowledge but being uncomfortable sitting with the the pure and simple difference that lies there uh, in the treatment, the historical treatment, the present treatment of these particular lives. So there's one, an impulse to universalize, and I think that um, I think that, that is a very uh, white impulse <laughs> to not be comfortable with difference. So one of those, I think, what might be going on there is a fear of identity politics and a re- uh, reaction against it. Uh, to act as if, you know, the hardest thing for white folks like myself to do is to acknowledge and realize that there are real um, ethnic and racial identities in play because, uh, you know, white folks are the ones that don't think they have one. (laughs) Just (laughs) Just because it's the most dominant, it kind of just gets to exist as the norm, right? It's the norming norm of life. So we struggle to acknowledge uh, in general, that these are legitimate, deeply important uh, identity pieces that are functioning in our culture, and therefore we like to cover over it by universalizing. So that's one piece. But I think particularly in the context of Blue Lives Matter, it it turns a phrase that is meant to highlight a long-standing historical mistreatment and injustice uh, by turning and attaching that to a people group or a, an occupational group um, that has never lived under erasure. So my point really is that this is a misconstrual of history because the whole point of Black Lives Matter is that it is a statement against a history of those lives not mattering. 
Um, and blue lives, as an occupation, have never lived under erasure. They've never lived under the risk of social death, death or you know, obliteration uh, in, uh, in neighborhoods, as people groups, historically, uh, as family units. So to say that, knowing that it's you, you're trying to relate it or draw on the same ethos, the same impact of Black Lives Matter, is to, whether intentionally or not, uh, associate blue lives with the same kind of um, life that needs to be reasserted and needs to be asserted that hasn't historically mattered. And the fact is that those lives have historically mattered deeply, right? Right. Uh, They have not been disposable in our context. They have not been that life and that culture and that community, that color upon which the country was built as constitutively hostile to which really, when you look at, you know, the, the, really the roots, I mean, that, that's how deep some of this, this goes in terms of blackness. So the danger is that it associates, um, again, horrible individual tragedies and horrible mistreatment of any life with some sort of historical significance that, uh, that these, this occupation has lived under erasure, lived under the threat of obliteration or social death like black lives have. Yeah, and I think to to draw some you know very simple comparisons, I, th- I think you you actually made the point that you know there is uh, even in the midst of these particular stories of horrible uh, decisions that resulted in the loss of lives uh, that started in June with a series of events in our country yeah. where police officers were involved. Yeah. We all admit that's minority in the yeah. sense of. The, the vast majority that we, we know aren't what, what have been referred to as the bad actors. Yeah. Um, and so uh, it, to, you mentioned that um, you walk into a, a restaurant in uniform. Mm-hmm. And many places, many restaurants will give primacy or priority to someone in uniform, particularly a police officer. Yeah. Um, and so there there's you know, innumerable illustrations in history where uh, there are places a black person could not walk into to order food. Right. So that that amplifies that. Now, at the same time, you know, I describe that as kind of maybe an oversimplification of what you're describing. It, it, it is true that um, uh, e- even that attempt at an illustration doesn't do justice to the long-term structural problems or obstacles mm-hmm. rather that um, uh, black uh, people have faced that police never have. Right. And so that's right. always a risk we run. I think when, when white, you know, a couple of white guys get on uh, Skype and, and, and try to talk about this issue yes. and, and, and we try to use illustrations that sometimes even in their use actually play part of uh, this insidious underlying structure because of the way our vocabulary works, because of the way, uh, you know, uh, common discourse works. And yeah. inadvertently, even in using that illustration, we run the risk of, you know, not really playing to the depth of the problem. Right, right. And that, and that is, you know, a, a deep and ever-present problem. Um, my, my wife, who is a first-generation uh, Mexican-American, uh, constantly... Uh, appropriately and very well, you know, puts me in my place in, in relation to these issues. Um, 
uh, it's one thing to to maybe have the right analysis, right, that you read from the right kind of authors or social theorists that do this work from experience, uh, and quite another to have that conversation well, where you're not just uh, reasserting and retaking the dominant position, you know, now telling the truth about racism, you know, as... Um, as kind of the, the white illuminator or something. Um, and <laughs> right, that, and that, right. That's an ever-present struggle, I think, um, to know how to do that well. And I think, you know, like, um, I think for a lot of folks, and for me, I mean, this, again, to, to speak a little bit personally, uh, this whole experience of, of getting, so I can get into things academically, and, and this certainly I have academic interests in some of the theory behind this. Um, but for me, these really these questions were, were really raised... Um, from a ministerial context, when I kind of left, um, in addition to teaching again, I also do some ministry work, and I, I kind of left a more uh, a young adult local church context uh, to become a chaplain, basically kind of a public minister, uh, working at a, a homeless shelter on Skid Row in downtown L.A. about three years ago now. And so my experience of these 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 issues coming to life was really through the experience of the lives of the men that I work with here in a and, and a recovery program, guys coming, uh, struggling to get out of both homelessness and uh, addiction, post-incarceration, re-entry, all these things that, that relate very closely to some of these race issues down on uh, Skid Row, kind of the homeless capital of the states, and really some, some say the, the world in the sense of the, the issues and the, the political issues around it. So for me, um, I, I have been opened up to this, um, and in some sense kind of got to be a better word than radicalized, but in some sense really torn open. These issues were torn open for me through the experience of doing this work, both one-on-one and, um, and, and, and more systemic work with, with the guys I'm uh, spending my days with and doing ministry with down here. Um, that, that's what opened these things to me. So, um, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I was uh, thinking that would make a great move to your second piece, but before we get to that, yeah. um, you know, um, I would say that any time someone opens themselves up to an experience of the other, Mm -hmm. whatever other that might be for them, it it becomes a sensitization rather than a desensitizing, Mm -hmm. uh, amplifies or creates new sensibilities. Um, You know, I... uh, told you I interviewed uh, a state representative here in Oklahoma uh, yesterday yeah. and um, and, and I, I when I called him to and made the initial contact I, I said I listened to dr. Barbara Holmes tell uh, a gentleman when he said I need you come to come tell these stories to my people which was mm. virtually a, a you know african-american a black woman telling a white minister you know and her reply was, uh, you need to tell your people. Hmm. Uh, so um, I've, I've kind of taken that seriously since March and said, okay, how does that exactly work? So um, in essence, that's a bit what we're doing here is sure. we're telling our people, but it, it, it wasn't from a theoretical vantage point. Uh, when we moved into, um, about 10 or 12 years ago, deliberately taking up some ministry among and with homeless, um, you know, what started out as kind of this 
you know, really cool youth driven sort of thing that's really kind of maintained its uh, life by some adults who said, wow, uh, never, ever have seen the world through these eyes. And, and, and that's what, when you describe your on-the-ground experience and you worry about whether radicalized is a appropriate description, I, you know, in its essence, that simply means rooted. And if, yeah, we're, rooted, right. if we're rooted in the human experience, then all right. we're saying is that my experience isn't uniform for everybody. And in order for me to you know, take on um, an understanding of the world, I probably need to be exposed um, I need to be exposed to and then be exposed by. And, yeah. and so when, when you made that move uh, to Skid Row, it, it provoked in my mind that, that first time, you know, with a great deal of unease and discomfort, you know, we wheel up in a 15-passenger van and we start, you know, serving soup and, and uh, sharing conversations and uh, hygiene items and clothes and and we start participating with a group of people who have been doing this for years, and we watch them interact on a first-name basis, and, you know, how are you doing, and how's your family, and how's this experience, and how's that, how are you feeling? And now we, you know, all these years later, we have those sorts of relationships that opened us up to uh, a completely different sp- perspective on homelessness and, you know, what creates those conditions. Right, right. You yeah, know that, I think... I think my hesitance with that word was really um, was really in, in just the way that it connotes, you know, that you've uh, uh, that you've really had some, you know, quite ex- extreme change um, that uh, that that has a kind of legitimacy that I, I hope to have someday. But sure. it definitely did in the sense of it it rooted me um, in a place that I was. I use the language of just my in my in my in my prior existence <laughs> in right, my, right. My, in my environments in which I had been uh, cultivated and developed. It was so, it was so profoundly different uh, that it was though that exposure. Uh, it really was uh, traumatic in the sense of it, it. It was a pulling out of 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 some of the soil uh, and and a placing in new soil. So there was a real transition period of kind of realizing. Um, not just that many ways I saw the world, you know, not that it just changed my quote-unquote worldview, but that so much of what I thought played and had impact and was relevant um, to all life um, was, was, was deeply put in check by my experience of, of kind of doing life in this community. Um, and so it, it really reformed many of my perspectives. Um, it helped me in many ways to see what in a real concrete way mattered um especially in these contexts and and where where the bs was in my perspective in terms of its import into real life Um, which i think is really important it's really important on a lot of levels but especially on a ministerial level um to realize you know that the legacy of the work we do um what, in whatever context, right? The tradition in which we're right. rooted is a, is a tradition that is at bottom meant to be born of common communal work with uh, folks at the margins and folks that are the folks at risk of not being considered folks in the community. Um, and so it really, in, in a lot of ways, honestly, for me, uh, kind of on the simultaneously on the academic trajectory, 
uh, in terms of some of my works uh, and focus, it really helped to kind of revivify or bring back to life my belief uh, in faith, faith organizing kind of work Mm -hmm. uh, by kind of forcing me to really become um, undone uh, in some of my more stale uh, and underexposed perspectives. So it's really, it's kind of reopened a space where I can um, see that work as uh, more challenging than I saw before, but uh, as meaningful again. Right. Uh, in, in, and, and that uh, it applies in ways that it's really, it's really changed me. So I'm, I'm really thankful for that more than anything. Sure. You know, when you, when you, Putting that description together, I couldn't help but think of the word you used in um, in the article, homelessness and neoliberalism in L.A., a crisis of values. Yeah. You know, you you spent a good bit of time there talking about values, and, and you could say that when you said, well, you know, uh, it, it may not have been necessarily a um, restructured worldview, but you there were some things you value now that whether you did or didn't you just not to the degree because of the experience so um you were talking about in that piece um that one of the things that is necessary to address these particular issues so when you were talking about homelessness that you're dealing with you know we're talking about uh, uh, poverty, addiction, post-incarceration, and, and of course a host of others. But but you were really drawing attention to the fact that we need we need to revive some values that inform our policies. Where yeah. normally we actually are just interested in maintaining our policies yeah. without thinking what values support those policies. Yes, absolutely. So what values um, could you identify? I'm, I'm, I'm not looking for anything exhaustive, of course, but, sure. but when you make that shift or when you made that recognition and, and now you're writing uh, hoping that, that people understand that, that there's something to value or something about our values that ought to drive something different, what, what, are, some, what are one or two values that you kind of always look to? Yeah. Um, I mean that that's a good a good question. Um, I think sort of to set up the problem um, I think I think the problem is again when we talk about a crisis of values, you know uh, the kind of obvious truism that certain values are always guiding us collectively uh, as a society, whether that's just in and through the policymakers or whether that has you know seeped down into our culture, of course, in many ways the perspective of our policymakers is has bubbled up from the culture too so it's a reciprocal relationship right but i think i think the first important thing to do is really to examine what values are guiding even our present social service policies right um and and i think the struggle with this question of homelessness um and this is relevant particularly to la which has recently had this declaration of a state of emergency 44,000 plus uh, in the county uh, that we can count are homeless. They think there's actually many more. Um, and and so we so we have this impulse to say, you know, we know when we're being honest or at least 
some people are being honest and vocal enough to force the rest of us to be honest. We know that homelessness is wrong, that it needs to be dealt with. Um, but the question is, okay, what values are going to guide the, the decisions that we make in terms of fixing the problem? And I think the question um, for me is, um, what are the particular values? And, and, of course, the obvious ones are human life. We need to value human life. We need to value lives. And, of course, that relates to Black Lives Matter. But um, I think we need to have a sense of solidarity. I think that's a particular kind of value that's really important. Uh, you know, you mentioned liberation theology. That is a huge um, important word and value there. Um, and in relation to homelessness, I think I think a sense of solidarity with the homeless uh, is what is something we need. And I think that goes beyond valuing life because solidarity is only something that we have in and through ongoing regular relations with. Yes. So I think that's a, that's, a, that's a necessary condition on solidarity is that it is born of regular uh, continued ongoing relations. Um, and I think that that kind of commitment to, to, to fixing homelessness and that kind of relation to those experiencing homelessness um, is what will help us kind of create and cultivate values that go beyond saying, okay, well, we need to get homes for these people, um, which is which makes sense uh, in terms of just the etymology of the word, right? Okay, they lack a home, let's get a home. Uh, and that has been what a lot of the uh, impulse has been uh, policy-wise to move forward. And there's great studies on how, you know, rehousing is really uh, rapid rehousing or housing first, these different both national and local policies that have really worked. But in terms of the broader culture, I think we need more than to think of these people as autonomous individuals that need a house to live in. Um, but what are the conditions of our broader culture, not just that make a home hard to keep, but the life, the ongoing life in that home, the ability to sustain the kind of life once behind that door to where we don't see them on the street, to where they are flourishing and thriving and living in a context in the community where they can make their way. Um, that's what I grapple with because I think, I think that our impulse to get people off the street can become pretty, it can be pretty thin and uninformed uh, and unhelpful long term if we think that simply uh, it almost becomes out of sight, out of mind. Um, and let's face it, you can put someone in a home and even subsidize and pay for it for a year or so. But the state of you know, our market-driven economy, uh, that, that, that constant emphasis on deregulation um, and the, the soaring cost of rent and even just um, cost of living in places like Los Angeles, uh, our putting people in homes doesn't fix that problem. It doesn't take them out of a life of precarity where they are precariously making life work. So I think that the values we need are values that through relationship with folks in that context would see that the changes and the changes to our system need to go way beyond just creating spaces to get people out of, out of sight and into a nice, safe place. Don't get me wrong, that's very wonderful. But only in solidarity would we see the breadth of needs in our society for those that have been uh, put at risk. Um, and so that's a value, I think. That's a starting point, you know. And I think this is an evolutionary thing where it would have to, we would have to really start to think differently if we thought more holistically about the problem. But it would only come if we begin by, by valuing relationships where we spend time over time with folks and we really see the depth of the issues uh, within, within the broader context. 
Yeah, you. When I read um, your analysis and kind of some obvious points you were trying to raise in the particular context of L.A., I couldn't help but think of um, we don't have, one, we don't have near the population overall, but we certainly don't have the, the number of homeless in the Oklahoma City metro area. But when we landed a, uh, an NBA franchise, mm. um, the, the traditional pockets where you could, say, make those connections that could result in some uh, ongoing um, relationship-building sorts of things that you could develop out of that, some solidarity with, and then make some moves to take care of some of those issues. The, the city fathers began began pushing those populations out of the uh, area, yeah. And and there were literally um, the policy invoked. So he, here we're talking policy that was enforced by the police, but the police didn't make the policy; they were just required to enforce the policy, and they were required to push if you will, those who were homeless to the edges, so much so that the Salvation Army, uh, I think it was, um, built a, a brand-new facility. Um, now it's just a block away from a, a small church parking lot that we meet in to serve a, a, a particular homeless population. And, and instead of downtown, it's it's what we would call the, the shallow northwest side of town. In fact, I, I grew up only a mile and a half as the crow flies from that very intersection. Mm, uh, wow. And there and and so when you start describing that, I start thinking that that, that when you you because you described a crisis in the peace and you, you, you described, you know, the financial uh, decommitments yeah. to the issue and that sort of thing. And and I think that honestly, um, that shows up in obviously lesser uh, uh, figures, but I think it shows up as we really are a little bit unsure what to do about quote homeless people, and then and then from time to time I'll get um, someone will shoot me a Facebook uh, a message or a messenger or something, and and it'll be an article they read because they know we are, you know, involved in that ministry, and, and it'll always be about one of these stories you alluded to, where man, look at what they're doing to get people off the street. Yeah, yeah. And we don't hear the other things that are required to do that. You know, it reminds yes. me of, you know, you and I probably could have an entire bit on on uh, post incarceration. Oh my gosh! And yeah. and and the the particular economic disadvantages that go with post incarceration. So the very idea of one get a job is difficult enough, but get one that can support where you're living is is just virtually impossible. Virtually impossible. And that doesn't matter if you're in L.A. or Oklahoma City. Yes. Um, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to Hawaii, um, but there are, you know, homeless cities on the beach. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've I've talked to some guys who were stationed there uh, when they were in the service. And and they were astonished to go back and see some of the beaches that they roamed just as far as you could see. Yeah. 
And I'm sure that's because of more temperate climate. And if you can get right. over there, you know, um, you, you don't, you, you at least aren't, aren't suffering the elements of, right. you know, 90 plus degrees in LA or, you know, what below zero in Saskatoon, you know, you, you, you're, right. you're, you're, and, and so this seems to be a universal thing. Uh, um, and, and I'm, I'm really appreciative that you, you really challenged, you know, my thinking because, you know, we start thinking about, well, man, how can we get a collective together and find a place and maybe an old dilapidated apartment complex, rehab it and give, you know, but it, it really doesn't, um, address all the other accompanying issues. Right. And, and that's the thing that I think, you know, as, as communities of ministry, um, as folks that seek to at least do something to, um, to speak to it or to address it, I think, I think the, one of the best things we can do is, is raise consciousness at, at, at least to what are the social issues, the contributing factors, what are the norm, normative values that we're seeing in our society that are, that are causing this, right? And so uh, that's why I think making terms like, you know, neo, neoliberalism mm-hmm. uh, aware to, to the communities we serve, it's not just, that's not just a, um, an academic um, or a you know something that sounds nice on a blog if you want to pretend like you know something about economics, which I don't, right? But when you when you look at these things like you know neoliberal uh, economic and political ideology, you know you, you, people have have done the kinds of analyses that show us you know that bring to life why this situation goes beyond someone being homeless and needing a home. You know, I mean, this is an ideology, a perspective, you know, the, the neoliberal perspective that that has more than anything else, you know, prizes the deregulation of markets, you know, free market economics and individual wealth and the reduction um, and, and oftentimes elimination of taxes um, that resists any sort of, you know, infringement on those freedoms, um, the accumulation of property, of private property. Um, uh, you know, the, it's when we really talk about these things in terms of the values and the systems that we can see, wow, you know, it is that system in which we live that further that has created the barriers um, to folks, whether it's reentry population or folks that are struggling with homelessness, to get out of it. You know, and that and that even um, that even informs the way in which we think about the problem, right? Yes, if it you does. think, if you're yes, not just, oh, neoliberalism as a contributing factor, okay, so these values make it for a real, you know, dog-eat-dog society. But also, um, if we think of, if we think that that is the nature of human life, then we think that, uh, then we will also assume that the person experiencing homelessness is experiencing it um, as a neoliberal agent. So what they need is the kind of freedom and accumulation, um, you know, that, that that's going to fix it, right? And that's why housing makes sense, because that's a real concrete um, sort of private property space we can give them. Um, and, and so, so it, it also will, it doesn't just help us realize that the particular contributing factors to the problem, but it helps us identify that maybe we're thinking about the solution in a way that is just a, let's give them some more of the stuff of neoliberal stuff or of the same policies rather than realizing, well, maybe the context in which we're thinking about this is, is so much the problem creating this precarious life for so many people, like you said, across state lines, across national lines, 
that we need to operate with different values. Um, and that, I think, is the big struggle for, for people in faith communities. I mean, and that's what's exciting to me about faith communities is though they are, though they are just as much enmeshed within the same culture, they at least are these microcultures that might be able to create and foster a different kind of life together to maybe see outside the veil, so to speak. And I'm not trying to be fatalistic that we all can't help but see, you know, see as... Um, you know, within that ideology of freedom and wealth and, you know, because there are people that disagree with that. But, but within faith communities, we can create spaces to maybe see, see with different eyes um, and start to see, uh, humanize the folks experiencing it, but also see different ways of being together um, that challenge, you know, that, that legitimately challenge um, kind of the broader cultural perspective yeah, and, and you emphasize um, that if we could um, move from reinforcing reactive attitudes but mm. become or enact a prophetic yeah. um, engagement, yeah. um, I, I, I certainly like that. There, you know, there are schools of thought. Um, you'd be obviously familiar with them that would um, um, really tell us that it's not, not, not our business. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and my problem is, 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 is that it, it seems to just adopt a status quo value. Yeah. Uh, and ignores um, any sort of empathic move, um, mm-hmm. makes impossible any sort of solidarity. Yeah. And, yeah. and 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 sometimes those even um obtain a, what we would say from kind of even a, a liberal vantage point. Yes, good. Which yes, is which absolutely. is what's odd. You 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 fairly well expect that. Um yeah. if you're, you know, if you're kind of more anxious about being left behind, um but but it, it if you you know, hail from a different perspective. It's surprising that some who would normally be characterized more liberally mm-hmm. hold that particular position. It's it's yeah. it's a bit it's a bit unsettling, actually. Yeah, it is, and I and I think that again, I think this relates in many ways to. I mean, it 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 relates to some of the issues of race. To be honest, in many ways. Um, uh, the profound whiteness of many liberals in the sense of, uh, again, the same impulse to want to be as universal as possible, to want to be neutral. Um, these are, for many you know, churches um, and, and faith communities, some of the guiding values, even, you know, quote-unquote progressive or liberal ones. We have a profoundly uh, fearful uh, impulse against um, the idea of taking sides on an issue, mm-hmm. and part of that, I think, is, is historically faith communities have been really, you know, hurt or alienated or isolated or just bruised from things like the culture wars, sure. uh, which was very obviously a, a uh, politicized taking of sides by you know conservative or call you know conservative evangelicals or right wing evangelicals, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, and so there has been a, almost a reaction by many, um, I don't know, centrists uh, or too conservative folks to think, well, the best thing to do is to disengage and, and to really focus on, you know, uh, try to be the church within the context of, you know, the, the American context and support that, but not really take any, you know, strong sides on issues. 
in relation to some of these broader social things because, you know, the, the church transcends that, right? And, and I just think, I think that that is the wrong reaction. Yeah. I think, uh, and I think that there is a lot of, um, of problems there, particularly, you know, if there is one thing, I don't care how you read, you know, which, with which hermeneutic you read the Bible, you cannot get away from the fact that God is taking sides from the beginning. Right. Um, and that alone, I think, to continue to tell ourselves that and to wrestle with, you know, what side is being taken here, because our call is to follow that and to take, take the right side, so to speak. Which is not to say that everything is A or B, but there are sides and there are contestations between, um, you know, uh, the oppressed and the oppressor, the suffering and the not. And God is continually, you know, calling his community to be on one of those sides yes. for the sake of those folks. Not yes. because it's about the fight, but because the nature of the conflict demands that God chooses sides. Uh, and Jesus takes sides. And so if we can find ways to preach that and and then squirm in it, you know, because you even say that, and I, and I still sometimes say that to myself and go, oh, that sounds so contentious, you know. But uh, And there is winsome, uh, wonderful ways to do that. But... I mean, that, if I, whenever I get a chance to, you know, be around faith communities, local communities, I mean, that, I always come with a version of that message because it's that experience. It's, it's that willingness to see that we are called into um, to have sides and have opinions. Now, I think we oftentimes have very strong opinions and, uh, about and, and take sides on issues that are not the, the guiding uh, emphases um, within the tradition that we should be. But that's not to say that the response is to then uh, move away from that altogether. Sure. And that's where I think solidarity becomes, again, we don't say we take sides and then assume we know which side to take, right? right. We say, gosh, God took sides. And then we go enmesh ourselves in the kind of communities and the kind of relationships, right, um, that Jesus did in those contexts to find out which side we're being called to in our local context, you know? Um, and that's where I think that that the, that the kind of the solidarity and the recognition of, of side taking can come together, um, and that that's kind of where they did for me. Is I, I, and again, I, I it, it can show you how you know the context in which you read the tradition is so important um, because that side taking really came out to me in in the most vivid way possible once I was in a community uh, where I really saw that some important. Um, sides, both political sides and social sides, uh, needed to be taken. Uh, um, so, yeah, I think those can be, those two things can be emphasized in tandem as a way forward for communities. And I think that's very good and very helpful, uh, if not um, instructive. I mean, I, I do think that um, progressives, liberals, I, I think everybody really falls prey to a paralysis uh, of sorts, and and so I think you know what you just described actually describes actually transcends or n- negates the need to choose one of those particular perspectives if your aim is to say Jesus gave us an example of of what solidarity really looks like. Now go hang out with those people. I mean, yeah, right. that really then. Um, it, it it really undercuts a hermeneutic. If yeah. if you if you're really going back to the value you 
we're describing that under underlies the whole idea of solidarity and and not to be trite, but but life does matter, people do matter. Yes. And there've got to be ways that we can elucidate that, make that a, a lot more apparent. And uh, if we can transcend the polarities that we face, oh, you're conservative or you're liberal, and, and we can say, well, you know, here's the side, and the side really wasn't a conservative or liberal side. It was a side that was taken for and with yes, uh, yes. the other. And I think, and I think that, that, that is a way forward, um, and that is a way to move beyond... Um, I think we have to focus on getting our bodies and communities in the right place and in the right kind of relations if we're going to have good um, faith communities. Yes. If that makes sense. And if we're going to have good perspectives on these things. So that's what I wrestle with and say, well, yes, this is, we need to change ideas, right? Yeah, you know, I still believe enough in the academy to think that there's some, there's some ideas and some stuff to be thought through and some theory to be developed. But in terms of church communities, I think that has to first happen with getting our bodies in the right places, by which I mean our tangible daily lives in the contact with the right kinds of people. Um, not, not just for the sake of, oh, now we can be changed because we're hanging out with, you know, the suffering, no, because, you know, you know, as I think it's, um, it's either Gustavo Gutierrez or John Sabrino says, you know, there's no, there's no salvation outside the poor, mm-hmm. by which he means that that is where the truth lies. And that, right. is, that is the weird, weirdly particular dimension of, you know, this supposedly universal God is particularly located in these places in a way that if we're going to find new answers and if we're going to have fresh words, uh, for society, it's going to be through those concrete, material connections and relations to, to the kinds of to those kinds of communities, um, and then, and that's where prophecy comes from. It comes from relation. Oh yeah, and and when when you know you invoke, uh, we got to get our bodies in the right place, man. If there, if, if that's not another um, uh, avenue or angle that. Maybe we can get back on line and, and uh, uh, chat about because we're afraid of bodies. Yeah, you know, so we theorize, <laughs> yeah. and so yeah, right. now you know now we've come full circle um, to um, you know it, it isn't about uniforms; it's about bodies. Yes, and and uh, and the church is just not always done real good with bodies. No, we've, um, we've been, we've been know, scared of bodies, we, we, let alone we, we've, differently colored ones. Exactly. We've helped shame them. Yeah. We've, we've promoted stylized visions. Um, yeah, 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 boy. <laughs> well, man, I, uh, I, this has been good. And yeah, uh, I, I, I appreciate uh, you writing those and giving us an opportunity to chat about it and, and then tell us a little bit about, you know, kind of your own um, recognitions that that have come as as uh, chaplain on Skid Row there, and, and we just want to say, man, keep up the keep up the work, keep up the writing, keep challenges, keeping keeping Johnny, man. Absolutely. Well, back at you, Todd. Really, I'm so excited. Um, you know, after knowing you for a few years and and on all the good things you're doing uh, locally and, and and interconnecting with different communities, I'm just I'm really glad you're doing a resource like this. So uh, just just happy to be a part of it. Keep pumping them out. Back at uh-huh. you. All right, we'll do it, man. Hey, thanks, Johnny. Appreciate your time, man. Okay, brother. All right. As always, I want to thank you for listening to Pathological, the podcast for the pastor-theologian, reminding you that we explore the intersection of life, faith, and theology, along with pastoral work, pastoral ministry, or those involved in pastoral care. 
which really can be anybody who has a care for their neighbor or the other. We like to think through those things from the perspective of God revealing himself in Jesus. And so we have that particular distinction when we have these conversations. You know, if you uh, have an opportunity and wouldn't mind, run over to iTunes and give us a rating. It'd be even more helpful if you'd leave a review. It helps us get found and uh, uh, lets folks know about the resource that's available here at Pathological. If you'd like to start a podcast, we'd love to help you as uh, Pathological is part of the uh, Roundtable Media Group Network as an affiliate podcast. And so you could, round, uh, you could email me at todd at roundtablemediagroup.com. It might be that you'd like to advertise to uh, across the Roundtable Media Group uh, group of podcasts. And if you'd like some information about that, how to do that, what those uh, uh, terms and uh, costs associated would be, email me at todd at roundtablemediagroup.com. I want to highlight uh, Ryan and Phil's conversation rules, where they will generally take a current event, uh, a current social uh, occasion to uh, talk about uh, it from uh, the vantage point of uh, its details, its context, and then why does it matter? And so they divide their podcast up into those three segments. And so uh, you could find uh, a link to them uh, in the uh, blog post associated with this podcast, as well as uh, going over to roundtablemediagroup.com, and you could check out any of our uh, podcasts that are affiliates and produced there by Roundtable Media Group. And as always, I want to thank you for listening and uh, invite you, please, to help us and share the podcast. You can tweet it, Facebook it, uh, in any other uh, social media format that you could help get the word out and the word around. It always helps us um, provide this resource uh, to as many folks as you know that would be helped by it. And so this has been Todd Littleton with Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian. As always, thanks for listening and peace. Peace.